Amen. What a great church we have. Praise be to God. Thank you, especially to Lily Everett, who helped put that together, and for all the people who were engaged and involved in helping that video come together. We're so grateful for you. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians in chapter 3, if you will. Like many of you, I've seen enough uh, courtroom TV dramas and actual live courtroom pictures now because of court TV to know that when a witness is cross-examined, the attorney is going to try to put that witness on the defensive, right? They're going to ask a lot of related but different questions to try to trip that person up and then hopefully be able to come to what really happened, what was really going on. And the assumption is that when people are backed into a corner, then they're going to kind of say things that maybe they would not have otherwise said. They're trying to get to the bottom of what's going on. Now, the Apostle Paul is being put on the defensive over and over again from the church at Corinth and from those who would, he would call the false apostles or the super apostles, those who have come into the church and who are seeking to just wreak havoc and cause chaos in the church. However, Paul doesn't become defensive. He, with precision, begins to clarify his ministry. He begins to say to the people what God has done in his life and what he is doing for the glory of God because of what God has done for him. Over the next several chapters in 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to defend his ministry as an apostle. And he begins here in chapter 3 talking about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. One way to do ministry and how God has given him the Spirit so that he can be involved with New Covenant ministry. If you will, we're going to read together in chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. However, we will start in chapter 2 and verse 17. So will you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in, and of our, in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we now turn our attention to your word, we're praying that your Spirit would give life, would transform us, and that for those who are here today apart from faith in Christ, that today would be the day of salvation, that you would work in, in marvelous and magnificent ways today for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, as we begin here in chapter 3 and verse 1, we, we recognize that there are two rhetorical questions written. 
all modern translations record here two rhetorical questions, with the answer, the implied answer being no. No, we're not seeking to commend ourselves, and no, we don't need letters of recommendation like some who would carry them to you or for from you. But we need to understand that the Greek text doesn't necessitate a rhetorical question here. In fact, William Tyndale, one of the first translators of the text into uh, English, English that we probably couldn't understand very well then, translated the first verse of chapter 3, the first part of it, not as a rhetorical question, but by, as a statement saying, we begin again to commend ourselves now, at first glance, when someone is commending themselves, we automatically think, well, that's an arrogant thing to do. That's a, that's a prideful thing to do. I'm commending myself to you, so I'm speaking on my own behalf to you. However, in Paul's day, self-commendation was an acceptable form of introduction, especially when the person who was speaking had proven himself or proven herself to be of worth, true to his words. Historians suggest that it was a means of building trust in a new relationship. So when we understand here the concept of self-commendation this way, we understand that it's essentially a resume. And most of you in this room have put together a resume, right? And what are you doing in a resume? You're telling people about who you are, about your skill set. You're telling people about your education, about your achievements. You are, in a sense, commending yourself to someone else for a certain thing. And you hope that it will be received well. In ministry, it used to be that when a, a preacher wanted to go to a different church, he would ask another friend in ministry to pass along his resume. Like, it, was, it wasn't seen as a good thing if you're passing along your own resume. However, times have changed. In fact, I passed along a resume of a friend just a couple weeks ago, and the, the person, the chairperson of their committee responded back to me and said, hey, we have a whole system set up. Uh, if you can have your friend go adjust to that system, right? Go get online and, and really apply for himself. So there's a change here going on. There, this idea of, of applying for yourself or, or commending yourself for something is, is now acceptable. Now, why entertain the possibility that Paul did not in, intend for there to be a rhetorical question at the very beginning here of chapter three? Well, I think because it seems that if Paul here is against self-commendation uh, in this instance, then he actually contradicts himself in this letter. Look with me at chapter four and verse two. I'll start in verse one. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Flip over to chapter six, if you will. Chapter six and beginning in verse three, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and affliction, hardships, calamities, and so forth. These are examples of God-centered self-commendation. Uh, commentator George Guthrie imagines Paul to be saying there in, in the first part of chapter 3 and verse 1, 
we seem to need to go through the process of establishing our relationship again in light of the damage done by the false apostles. And by the way, I have lots to say in light of the accusations that have been made against me. Now, so he goes on to say, do we need letters of recommendation to you or from you? Like, is that where we're getting our authority? Well, Paul doesn't have anything against letters of recommendation. In fact, multiple times in the New Testament, we see that Paul is actually recommending someone else. We see this in in the book of Philippians. We see this in Romans. We see this in Acts, where where Luke writes on behalf of behalf of what's going on with Paul and saying they sent this letter of recommendation. They're they're telling the church there at Corinth to receive Apollo. So we see that he's writing or involved with these letters of recommendation on. All the time. So, why then is Paul saying, Do we now need letters of recommendation to you or from you? Well, and notice that when he says, As some do. Now, as some need these letters of recommendation, he's talking about the same people that he mentioned in chapter 2, verse 17, who are peddling the word of God. He's talking here about the new leadership that has come into the church that is causing chaos in the church. Apparently, these false apostles, as Paul refers to them, had these letters of recommendation. Now, we don't know who wrote these letters of recommendation, but we do know that they must have shown the letters and said, hey, you can believe us because we have these letters of recommendation. But notice what Paul is saying. We don't need these letters of recommendation written with ink because church... You are our letter of recommendation, right? What God is doing in you proves that God is working through us. We don't need a letter because just look at your lives. So from this, the first thing we see is this. Spiritual transformation is the goal of ministry. Spiritual transformation is the goal of ministry. In a real sense, Paul is carrying around a letter of recommendation, It's in his heart. It's the church. It's his love for the church, his affection for the church. They themselves serve as his letter. And Paul says they can be known and read by all. Same thought is communicated there. They show themselves or they manifest that they are a letter. In other words, because the Holy Spirit has made them alive in Christ because they are new creatures in Christ, because they are being sanctified, this then gives legitimacy to Paul's ministry and to Paul's associates' ministries. Now, we might wonder, well, listen, we know this church in Corinth struggled. Why would Paul be pointing to to them as a letter when we know how much the church was struggling? On a side note, I've lived in at least one city that had multiple churches named Corinth, like Corinth Reformed Church or Corinth Baptist Church or, you know, Corinth United Church of Christ. And, And I'm thinking, what church wants to name themselves after Corinthian Church in the New Testament? But that's kind of the point, isn't it? There was a struggle. And if there wasn't a struggle, then we could say, well, God wasn't at work. The Spirit wasn't at work in their lives. But the Spirit was at work in their lives, and that's why there was a struggle. Yes, they struggled with all sorts of sin. Yes, there was all sorts of dysfunction in the church, friends. And that's true of all churches. There's sin in all churches. But by God's grace, he is changing us. He is sanctifying us. He is purifying us. He is transforming us. 
And Paul sees evidence of their conversion. He speaks to them as they are believers in Christ, even if they had issues. And what this tells us is that spiritual transformation doesn't happen overnight. It's a slow process. It doesn't happen overnight. There are no shortcuts. In fact, in Colossians chapter 128, Paul says, we proclaim him, Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. This is what he labors for. This is what he is struggling for. This is what he works for. And that tells us that the goal of ministry is spiritual transformation. So the question then for us is this. Are we being spiritually transformed? Is God changing us? Are we different today than we were five years ago? Are we different today than we were 10 years ago? As a staff, are we focusing on the things that will help foster spiritual transformation? As believers, are we engaging in the things that will help to bring about spiritual transformation in our lives? We have to ask ourselves, friends, how seriously do we take our relationship with Jesus Christ? This is a question all of us should ask in this room. How seriously do I take my relationship with Jesus Christ? If you're serious about losing weight, then you're not going to hide junk food in the house. You just won't. You're going to do the things that correspond to being more healthy and losing weight. And if you take your relationship with Jesus seriously, then you will put effort into spiritual growth knowing that this is what God desires in your life. You'll practice the spiritual disciplines, Bible intake and prayer and fasting and and corporate worship. You'll engage in biblical community because you know that, that discipleship, that sanctification happens best in the context of relationships when we're speaking into the lives of one another, when we're encouraging one another with truth, and we won't just see church attendance as an add-on to our lives. So if spiritual transformation is the goal of ministry, what is the power behind Ministry. What is the power that brings about spiritual transformation? The second thing we see here is that God stands behind all spiritual transformation. God stands behind all spiritual transformation. Listen, we have a responsibility to pursue it. We have a responsibility to pursue spiritual growth. And, but Paul is telling us that ultimately God is the one who makes it happen. That's what he means when he says, you are Christ's letter. So notice how Paul says, how Paul talks about this. He says, you're my letter, but actually you're Christ's letter. You're the work of Jesus. I'm just delivering it. I'm just, I'm just the spokesperson. I'm just serving towards this end. That's what he means when he says we're not written with ink, but with the spirit or by the spirit of the living God. This is, this is the dynamic of what growth in Christ is, what discipleship is. You've heard me say this illustration before many times, um, but when a kid is learning how to walk, that kid is, is using muscles that are not fully developed yet. Uh, Zach's son, Benaiah, is just over a year old and is, is really close. He hasn't started walking yet, has he? This, this illustration would completely fall apart if he'd already started walking. So. <laughs> but he's, he's close. He can't get there yet. If mom or dad is, is holding his hand, then then he gets there, but he can't do it on his own. But Benaiah is working, isn't he? 
He's struggling. He's using his muscles. He's pursuing it. But if mom or dad lets go, he's going to fall down and he's going to start crawling to the next piece of furniture where he can hold on to the furniture. Make sense? So the, so the one who's learning to walk is, is really efforting towards that. But it rests in the hands of mom or dad or grandma and grandpa. Right? That, that's where it is. And the same thing is true when it comes to spiritual growth in our lives. We effort towards it. We want it. We pursue it. But God is the one who makes it happen. God is the one who is carrying us along. If, if God's not involved, then we fall flat. But because God is involved, we grow. We, we work towards it. Right? Sanctification is different than justification. In justification, we're passive. God saves us. It's nothing that we do. But if we're going to grow in Christ, friends then we are going to work, we're going to effort, we're going to seek it out in our lives. And by the way, Paul is saying here that he has a part in this. The church is Christ's letter, but Paul has a part, right? He didn't cause the spiritual growth, but spiritual growth is happening in part because of the ministry that he is playing in the life of the church. And friends, when it comes to letters of recommendation, is there a higher authority than Christ? You are Christ's letter. You are Christ's letter. Paul understands that it's by the power of the Spirit that he is serving for the, spirit, for the spiritual growth of others. That he is working for spiritual growth, but it's actually not by his own power that he works. That's what Colossians 1.29 is about. Paul is saying that he works according to the energy that is powerfully at work in him. And that's the spirit of God. The truth is that God stands behind all spiritual growth. And the Corinthians should have known this. Because in his first letter that he wrote, when there's all these factions happening in the church... Paul just says, look, we're service. We're servants, right? Apollos planted, I watered, but God gave the growth. And friends, the fact that God stands behind all spiritual transformation should encourage us because that's what God wants for us. God is not holding back on you. If you're seeking him, he wants you to grow and he will grow you in Christ. He's not saying, well, if you, just, if you would just put a little more into it, then maybe I would respond. No, if you're putting something into it, if you're seeking him, if this is your desire, if this is your heart, then he is responding to you by the power of the Spirit to grow you in Christ likeness. And since the Holy Spirit is writing the story of sanctification in our lives, and friends, this ought to cause us to fall to our knees and to pray. Not just for ourselves, but for our family and for our friends. Because we know that growth depends on God. So, we have unbelieving family members. And we have unbelieving friends. Are we regularly praying for them? Are we regularly asking God to, to grow our children, to, to grow them in their love and their devotion to Christ, to, to grow them in their dissatisfaction for sin, to grow them, to, to give them grace as they pursue Christ? Friends, these 
should be our prayers for those we love. And we can have confidence because God stands behind it all. Third, we see that God qualifies his servants to serve for spiritual transformation. God qualifies his servants to serve for spiritual transformation. Notice there in verse four, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So Paul is saying, look, we're confident. We have the spirit of God living in us. We're confident, but he clarifies it in verse five. It's not because of who we are. It's because God is at work, because God is qualifying us. Friends, no one is sufficient in and of themselves. No one is gifted enough. No one is wise enough. No one can affect in and of themselves growth in another person, not even in themselves because it all depends on God. So who is it that qualifies God's servants to serve for the sake of spiritual transformation? It's God himself. It's God's spirit who works in us. This is the repeated testimony of scripture. This is the repeated picture that we see in scripture from Moses to Gideon to David, to all of them, right? To, to Ruth, to Esther, to Mary, all of them. God is the one who is qualifying them to serve. God is the one who is qualifying them to move in the direction to love others, to encourage others in Christ. And friends, hear this. We're not just talking about Bible characters because he is still qualifying his servants to serve for spiritual transformation. None of us are sufficient in ourselves, not in any capacity. But friends, in our weakness, God's power is perfected. In our weakness, God's power is perfected. And as we seek him and as we pursue him and as we love others, God is at work in us and in others. Friends, the church is a body. And all members are important. And all parts are essential for the proper functioning of the church. Each of us has a spiritual gift, right? Some may be more than, more than one. And spiritual gifts are to be exercised in the context of the local church for the building up of the body of Christ. That's why it's so important, friends, that we are willing to exercise our spiritual gifts, Gifts of administration, gifts of service, gifts of mercy, gifts of prayer, gifts of encouraging, gifts of giving, gifts of evangelizing, gifts of helping, gifts of leading. We, we had a funeral here yesterday, and, and I'm, I'm just telling you, I think the, certainly, and they're all important, but one of the most important ministry teams or committees we have in this church is our benevolence team. The ladies who serve on that team serve tireless, tirelessly in order to bless families who are bereaved. There's always a great meal and it always requires them being here early and it always requires them staying later and sometimes the husbands come and help clean up afterward and, and what a blessed opportunity that is to serve and to love others. And I want you to know that I'm so grateful for people who are engaged in ministry in this church. Yes, that is a ministry in this church. And friends, you need to know that we're looking for people to serve. Maybe not right there, but we have areas where we need people to serve. We need people to serve by holding babies during a worship service once a quarter. Are you willing to do that? Maybe once a quarter, once every other month, something like that. 
worship, care. We need people to serve as greeters. We need people to serve as ushers. We got multiple areas. We need people to serve in our student ministry. We have a lot of great volunteers who are serving in student ministry right now. And some of them have been serving there for many, many years. And what a blessing it would be if we could add more people to those areas. More people who love Jesus and because they love Jesus want to love students in this church. There are many, many areas where we could be using more people. In many ways, friends, our church health depends on us loving one another and utilizing our gifts to serve one another. I want you to listen to Ephesians chapter five, chapter four, verses 15 and 16. Apostle Paul writes, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, hear that, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What does it mean, each part working properly? I think it means when we are exercising our spiritual gifts in the context of the church, when the body is functioning properly, we are growing up in Christ, we are growing in love. This is the church. And the good news is that God is the one who qualifies everyone in this room to serve. Every one of you. No excuse. Everyone is qualified. Now, we want you to serve where you're gifted to serve. We want you to serve as there are needs. But God is the one who qualifies. Finally, spiritual transformation is possible because of the new covenant. Now, some of you notice that I skipped the end of verse three earlier. Paul contrasts these tablets of stone with tablets of human hearts. The actual word there is fleshly hearts. Tablets of stone is a reference to when God gave the law to Moses and covenanted with the people there in Israel at Sinai. This is a reference to the old covenant. In verse six, Paul writes that God has made them to be ministers of the new covenant. And he goes on to say, not of the letter, right? Not of the old covenant, not of the law, but of the spirit. So the new covenant then has something to do with the Holy Spirit. And the letter then has something to do with the law. Now next week, we're gonna look more fully at some of the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant, how the new covenant surpasses the old covenant. But notice that Paul tells us that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What does he mean? In what way does the letter kill and the spirit give life? Well, the old covenant defined a way to be made right with God based on external obedience to the law of God. Now, We can read enough in the New Testament to know that Paul's just not hating on the law here, right? In Romans 7, Paul tells us that the law is holy and good and it's spiritual. The law is a reflection of God's character and it's important for us for a variety of reasons, but maybe most specifically right now, it clearly points out our sin and our need for a savior, our need for transformation. I want you to listen to what both Jeremiah and Ezekiel had to say about the new covenant prophesied years and years and years prior to what comes about through Christ. 
So first we read in Jeremiah and chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 31 through 34. And I want you to notice here the locus of the New Testament, okay? Where, where is it centered? Where are we finding it? 31, Jeremiah 31. I think I said 33 before. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For the day, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. You see, it is an in eternal covenant. God is going to do something that is inside. He is writing his law on us. He is moving us in a direction where he is our God. And of course, he has Gentiles in, 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 in mind as well in this instance. But now in Ezekiel chapter 36, let's look at verses 25 through 27. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And, I will, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So speaking of the, New Testament, of the new covenant here, Ezekiel tells us that God is going to cleanse us. That he's gonna take our dead hearts of stone and he's gonna give us hearts of flesh, right? Living hearts. He's gonna, we're gonna be born again. And not just that, he's gonna give us his spirit. And what does his spirit do in us? He causes us to listen to God, to obey God, and to walk with God. So the old covenant was external. It couldn't change us. There was no internal compulsion moving us towards, moving us towards obedience. Yeah, there was something that was heavy-handed over us, but it didn't give us power to obey God. It just told us the consequences for disobeying God. Under the new covenant, we are spiritually alive through the work of the Spirit. So in what way does the letter kill but the spirit gives life? Well, the letter, the law, kills in the sense that we can't obey it perfectly. And because of that, we stand guilty and condemned before God. But the spirit gives life because the spirit transform us, transforms us internally so that we can follow God's ways. The spirit of God is, is moving in us, is working in us. But we obey because of what Jesus has done for us us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we learn that these false apostles had a Jewish background. And I think what Paul is doing is he's contrasting two ways to go about ministry. Now, we don't know for sure everything the false apostles were promoting, but it seems that they were promoting something in conjunction with the old covenant. 
Perhaps they were telling people in Corinth that they really needed to start adhering more to the law if they were going to be truly saved. Paul, on the other hand, focuses on the only message that saves, faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross and in the resurrection for the forgiveness of sin. The heart of the new covenant, friends, is a faith relationship with Jesus, the one who has followed the law perfectly. In Christ, it's not about us trying to attain a certain level or trying to have some certain performance. If we're trusting in Jesus, then we have already been made right with God because we've been giving, given Jesus' righteous. So we obey out of gratitude and out of love for our Savior. Internal compulsion and desire is the key to everything, isn't it? If your kid plays an instrument or lo- plays a sport, if they don't love that instrument or love that sport, it's very likely that you're going to be the one that has to make them practice. But if they love it, then they're going to move toward it themselves. And if the Spirit of God is living in us, then we're going to move towards Him because we love Him. That's what the Spirit does. That's why the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 5 that God's commandments are not burdensome. No, we, we want them. We see them. We, we value them. We understand they lead to joy and life. We were spiritually dead because of our sin and rebellion. We deserved God's wrath, but in his love, he saved us through Christ who took our punishment on the cross. Now, next week, we're going to dive deeper into the Old Covenant, New Covenant, but I want now to transition to the Lord's Supper together. This is the communal practice of God's New Covenant people. If you didn't get elements on your way in, we'll have some men uh, in the, near the back who will have some of the elements. Just lift your hand in the next few moments, and we'll be sure that they get those elements to you. I want you to listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 23 through 29. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity to remember Jesus' loving sacrifice for us. It's an opportunity to remember what he has accomplished in his sin, excuse me, in his death and resurrection for our sin. It's an opportunity to reflect on our own lives, examining our own lives prior to partaking. Now, Paul's not suggesting that we have to be perfect because that's impossible. But he is saying, and in the context, that we are loving one another and we are encouraging one another, that we are turning from selfishness and caring for one another. Embedded in this warning against partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner is the truth that this is for those who are in Christ. 
This is for those who have a faith relationship with Jesus Christ and are part of the family of God. So if that's not you today, we encourage you not to partake, for there is warning against that. Finally, the Lord's Supper is an opportunity to reassure ourselves of Jesus' victory and his soon coming. Because Jesus rose from the dead, because he reigns today with the greatest name, the highest name, the name above every other name, we who are in Christ have hope. He is coming again, and we will share with him in victory because of what he has done. So let's take some time for self-reflection and confession of sin, and in a few minutes, I'll give a little more instruction.